good to be with you. How are you guys feeling tonight? Woo! That's like a little okay, a little okay. But you guys are doing good. Thank you. Good to see you on a Saturday night. My name is Marvin. For those of you who are visiting, I want to say thank you for being with us. For everyone else, to say thank you again for worshiping with us. So we love to have you here. And uh, just thank you for choosing to spend your Saturday evening with us. I want to uh, just want to welcome each and every one of you, especially those of you that might be with us for the first time. We would love to get to know who you are. There's a connection card. That is in the seat back in front of you. You can grab that connection card, fill it out, drop it in the offering bag. Someone on our team will call you this week. We want to say hello. We want to just get to know you a little bit more about you and tell you how we may serve you. There's also a new people's table, and that's out in the lobby. You can stop by the new people's table. We have a free gift for you. Uh, that's just a way of saying thank you for being with us. And especially want to welcome those of you joining us online as well. Thank you for being with us. We love that you are here. Well, I've got several announcements. They're all great, and they're all in your bulletin on our app and on our website. So I encourage you to check those resources of information. But one, ladies, we are excited. I, I, I'm not going, but a lot of other ladies are excited to be going on a women's retreat, and that's going to be exciting. It's going to be happening in 2024. If you've never been on a retreat with Christian Assembly, Women, this is an opportunity for you to get away from the busyness of life here in Los Angeles, connect with other women, of course, connect with God, be in a great space in the outdoors. Does that sound good to you? Great. Then you want to sign up for the women's retreat. Uh, join God and other women as they get away from the city. Registration is officially open. These things sell out. So make sure you go to our website and register as soon as possible. There are two different housing options available. You'll see all that information on the website when you go. Their spots, again, are limited. So I encourage you, sign up today. Kids Church and Tommy Walker have joined together to create a family worship concert. What a great idea. Come and worship with your little ones, with your entire family. That's going to be happening Saturday, November 18th at 10 a.m. right here in our South Sanctuary. So if you have kids ages three years old all the way through fifth grade, we invite you to come on out. They're going to be celebrating the launch of the Book of John for Kids, which is an original animated worship concert. So you get to be a part of that on Saturday, November 18th. Lots of fun that you can do together as a family. Again, more information is on our website for that. On Friday, November 10th, from 7 to 8 p.m., across the street in our North Sanctuary, we're going to be celebrating the launch of Julie Boyd's new book entitled Brave Love. Brave Love is a, a collection of stories that Julie has collected over 20 years of living, loving, and working with the people of Kenya. It's going to be a wonderful collection of stories, so I invite you to come on out, be a part of that. It's going to be like an interview and a Q&A with Julie, again, on Friday, November 10th, from 7 to 8 p.m. Uh, Julie will We'll be signing autographs that night, but you have to pre-order your book and have it delivered before you come to that event because she won't have any or there won't be any for sale at that event. So you can go on our website and information is how to pre-order a book there. Well, we're going to continue in our time of worship by inviting our ushers to come forward in just a few minutes uh, as we prepare our hearts to uh, give worship through the giving of our tithes and offerings. If you are new or visiting with us tonight, just want to say be our guest during this time feel no obligation. If you do choose to give, we just want to say thank you. And to our Christian Assembly family who you're just so generous, and we just want to say thank you for your ongoing generosity. But before I call our ushers, let's pray. Psalm 27 says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And Lord, we do. We trust in you, Father. Where so many around us trust in so many things that are not you. 
we choose to place our trust in you, Father. And so as we worship through the giving of our tithes and offerings, we just pray that you would bless this time, that you would be with us, Lord. Thank you for allowing us to, to be able to be in this space and to worship you as freely as we do. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Ushers, you may come. Hello to my Christian Assembly online family. Whether you are in another city or you're unable to join us for any reason, we're just so honored that you're joining us today. My name is Ralph, and I'm one of the pastors here at CA. And today it is my honor and really privilege to lead us in our time together to take communion. Taking communion is something that Jesus commanded. We see this in two of the Gospels. And he told his followers that when you take communion, we are to remember. Now, what is it that we're supposed to remember? We are remembering that apart from Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, you and I would be lost in our sins. We are remembering what Jesus did for us in coming to the earth and dying on the cross and then being resurrected, that in that we have the opportunity to be saved from our sins and have this great pathway through him to God. The Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it also tells us that when you're going to take communion, you are to examine yourselves, meaning we are to look at ourselves and see if there's any unconfessed sin in our lives. So let's take a moment now to do that as I lead us in a prayer before we partake of the communion elements. Well, Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for our salvation and all the other ways you demonstrate your great love for us. Lord, thank you for 1 John 1, 9, which tells us that when we confess our sins to you, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So as we prepare to take communion, Father, help us to examine ourselves for any sin. And even now, Lord, we confess those sins to you with the confidence that you forgive us and you cleanse us from those sins. And Father, as your spirit is at work in this moment, I pray for those who have never accepted your gift of salvation through Jesus. I pray that even now, with the, they would accept Jesus as their savior and invite him into their hearts with this simple prayer. So if this is you, someone who's never made a first time commitment to Jesus, pray this simple prayer with me. Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God who died for my sins and rose again. Come into my heart to be my Lord and Savior. And Father, I pray that you would strengthen each believer in this time of communion, whether they just came to Christ or have been a follower for years. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke's gospel tells us that on the night he was betrayed, as they were eating a meal together, the Last Supper, Jesus took a loaf of bread, he broke it, he blessed it, and then he commanded his disciples, take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. So let's partake of the bread together, remembering that this represents Jesus' broken body and what he has done for us.
Likewise, Jesus took a cup, and having given thanks, he gave this to them, and he said, Drink, do this in remembrance of the new covenant, the covenant of my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Let's drink together. Father, thank you for what you have done for us through your son, Jesus. We are forever grateful, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you are someone who made a first-time commitment to Jesus, or maybe you just need somebody to pray for you, there's an email address at the bottom of your screen, and you can let us know. God bless you. Hope to see you soon. Well, let me add my welcome to uh, those that you've already received. If you're a visitor guest, some of you I met, it's your very first time here. What an honor and a privilege to have you here. And uh, my name is Tom, one of the pastors here at Christian Assembly. Of course, my CA family, great to be with you as well. want to welcome all of you who are joining us online, whether through the app or whether through the YouTube channel. Also want to welcome all of you for the 1115 uh, South Service and great to join you and have you join with us in this teaching time as well. I've been praying for you, church, whether you consider yourself investigating faith, whether you'd say you're spiritually unconvinced, whether you're half convinced, whether you say that you're fully convinced and moving to complete commitment to Christ, I have been praying for you. In fact, um, when we get to a time here in a moment where we're going to pray, uh, we have a bunch of middle schoolers who are up on retreat this weekend, so they're uh, already up in the mountains and they're doing their thing and we'll be praying for them as well. I think there's over 100 middle schoolers, uh, not even counting the leaders, who are up there as well. Well, we are in a series that we've entitled, With All Your Mind, Jesus at one point teaches and he says that you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and with all of your mind. <clears throat> if you look around and you observe people, uh, people believe all sorts of stuff for all sorts of reasons, and those reasons are not always rooted and grounded in any kind of evidence. Have you ever noticed this? Case in point, several weeks ago, I was flying on Alaska Air to go preach up in Oregon at East Hill Church, where our friend Keith Jenkins is a senior pastor, and I had my ticket, and I was seated in row 15, so we're boarding the, the plane, and you know, people are putting their bags up and everything, and I'm in line, and I'm going along, and I'm looking for row 15, and it goes row 11, 12, 14, 15. The airplane did not have a row labeled number 13. Why? Because someone somewhere thinks that 13 is an unlucky number. Now, as I was standing there, I thought about saying to the people in row 14, <laughs> don't listen to Alaska Air and their Jedi mind tricks. You are actually in row 13, no matter what they're calling it. This actually is row 13, so good luck to you, because I'm in 15, so I'll be okay. Or, or for example, uh, whenever uh, the weather was cooler a couple weeks ago, I commented to somebody, I said, isn't this cool weather great? And they're like, shh. I said, what do you mean, shh? They said, don't mention it, you'll jinx it, is what they said. 
I was like, I'll jinx the weather, and it'll get hot if I mention that it's nice to have some cool weather, right? So the reality is, as people, we have these kind of things like, hey, you know, I don't want to be in row 13, and don't mention anything about the weather because it might get hot again. And the reality is that we can believe all sorts of stuff or half-believe or kind of comically believe them that, that really have no grounding in reality. And at the very cornerstone of the Christian faith is an event, a claim that Jesus Christ died and rose again on the third day, that he resurrected from the dead. So now the question becomes this, is this just one of those things that people believe without any evidence, without any, any reason? And I want you to hear very clearly as we get started, no, it's not like that at all. Jesus teaches that we are to love God with all your mind. So what evidence or reasons do we have to believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ truly happened in actual history? We're going to consider that, but before we do, let's pray. So God, even now we do, we thank you for your goodness to be able to gather. And Lord, I think of the middle schoolers who are up at camp and they're gathering even now as well, Lord, and we pray that you would pour out your word and your spirit into their heart, mind, and soul, that those that don't know you would come to know you, those that know you would grow in great maturity, that they would have a lot of fun, Lord, in their time up there as well. But we also pray for our time now, and we ask God that you would speak to us. One of the things I love about you, God, is that we don't have to guess what you want to say because you've written us a love letter known as the Bible that teaches us how to know you, and teaches us what you're like, including who your son Jesus Christ is and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how that, as the book of Hebrews says, becomes the anchor for our soul. And so, Lord, I pray now for each one of us to grow in faith in your son Jesus Christ as we love you with all of our mind by exploring this evidence in Jesus' name. Amen. On your way in, hopefully you got a bulletin. If you did, you can flip it open to the center section. And uh, there's, that's the smallest font that we could do that we thought you could still read because there's a whole lot of evidence that we're going to go through. And then you'll see at the very bottom, we even have a lot of other verses that we couldn't fit in there. Maybe just start bringing your Bibles. Just bring your Bibles, and then I'll just say, look it up, and here's the, the Scriptures for you. But they're there for you, and the teaching notes for you to fill out as well would be great. So what evidence do we have that a man named Jesus of Nazareth, that he existed and died and resurrected? With the time we have, I want to walk us through eight pieces of evidence. So they're going to come quickly because there's eight of them. And the first one is this, is that the Gospels are historically reliable. The books in the Bible called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are called the Gospels. They are the four biographies of Jesus in the Bible. These accounts, they were written by eyewitnesses and the early followers of Christ provide us a clear and consistent history of the events surrounding Jesus's life, <clears throat> his death, and resurrection. Let me give you an example. In Luke, Luke chapter 1 verse 1 says this, since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided 
after investing everything carefully from the very first to write down an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, in Greek that means friend of God, most excellent friend of God, so that you may know the truth. They want us to know the truth, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. So Luke is uh, renowned in his precision and his accuracy of his writings, so much so that earlier in the series I mentioned that previously Sir William Ramsay, who was uh, one of the most renowned archaeologists in history, started out as a skeptic trying to disprove archaeologically the book of Luke and ended up becoming a believer because Luke was accurate on every archaeological point that he mentions. These writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, though they're written by four different people, are harmonious with one another, and they give us a strong foundation. Plus, they were not only close to the events, but they also had nothing to gain from fabricating the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. In fact, many of the original disciples were persecuted and killed and they actually had much to lose. So if you're thinking, well, they, they just wanted to be famous in history. Well, actually, many of them end up being killed for their faith, and they would have renounced it if it wasn't actually true. The second thing is this, and many people don't know the second point, is this, that non-Christian ancient historians give us a remarkably detailed summary of Jesus' life that aligns with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So people, uh, one time I had a guy say to me, Tom, you know, well, how come we don't have any references to Jesus other than in the Bible, like from other historians at the time? Doesn't that show that maybe this really didn't happen? And what I had to say to the guy is like, no, what it shows me is that you don't read ancient historians. That's what it shows me. I mean, that, that's just the truth. When's the last time you ask somebody like, what are you reading? And they're like, I'm reading I'm reading Tacitus. That's what I'm reading today. I'm reading Pliny the Younger. I'm reading Josephus. Like These are not like common people that we read every day today. And yet, there are a number of references to Jesus from ancient historians, and these were non-Christians. So it's not even like they're like, hey, we would just want to pad this up and, and, and kind of make it get a little momentum. For example, here's Josephus, who is a Jewish Roman historian. He said this, quote, at this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus. His conduct was good, and he was known for, to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, but those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. So that, that's from a, a contemporary Jewish-Roman historian who's kind of explaining what's going on. Or Tacitus was a, a well-known back then Roman historian, and he writes that Jesus suffered what he calls the extreme penalty. And that's a reference to the crucifixion. Because the crucifixion was the worst way that the Romans could devise for someone to die. So they called it the extreme penalty. And he said that he suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate. 
Other references from antiquity include mentions from the historians uh, Suetonius, Pliny the Younger, uh, Mara, Barsarpian, and a number of others. And here's what I want you to hear. If you just put all of their writings together, so not even what the Bible says, you just put together the writings of the non-Christian historians, just from those non-Christian sources, here's what we would know about Jesus. We would know that he was reported to have been born of a Virgin Mary. We would know that he was a teacher and that his disciples passed on his teachings to others. We would know that he prophesied and he was known for performing miracles. We would know that he was known for his wisdom and his virtuous life. We would know that he claimed to be God. We would know that he was crucified by Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius Caesar in Judea. We would know, this is interesting, that there was an earthquake and darkness accompanied his death. The Bible says that, but so do contemporary non-Christian historians. Yeah, that, that earthquake really happened, and darkness really did come over the land. His followers, we would know that his followers reported that he had risen from the dead on the third day, that the tomb was empty, that Christ appeared to them, and that he showed them the wounds in his hands, and we would know that his followers worshipped him as God. And so you can see it's a fairly detailed summary that, that aligns with what the Bible's actually teaching in the biographies of Jesus. The third thing we would see is this, is the evidence of the empty tomb points to the resurrection of Jesus. In Luke chapter 24, verse 1, it says this, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, the women came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared because it was customary as part of the burial process to have spices. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified. They bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man, which is a title that Jesus often used to refer to himself, it comes from an Old Testament prophecy, that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners to be crucified and on the third day rise again. Now obviously, one of the most compelling pieces of evidence is the empty tomb. Because after Jesus was crucified and buried, his tomb was sealed with a large stone, and it was guarded by Roman soldiers. And yet on the third day, the tomb is found empty. And this fact cannot be dismissed because it was known by both the friends as well as the foes of Jesus. So if the body was still in the tomb, it would, the enemies of Jesus would have just went to the tomb and gotten the body and presented it and said, see, you're all delusional because the body's still here. And yet they couldn't do that because the body was no longer in the tomb, even though it had been sealed with a stone and was guarded by Roman soldiers who were the elite soldiers of their day. Brings us to the fourth point, which is this, is that Jesus fulfilled uh, predictions about his resurrection, showing us that he is unique in all of history. Three times in the biography of Jesus, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus predicted that he would die and then rise again on the third day. I'll give you just one of them. 
In Matthew 20, verse 17, it says this. While Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside uh, by themselves, and he said to them on the way, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, so he's referring to himself by that title, the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and on the third day, he will be raised. Now think about this for a moment. Our best economic experts can't even predict which way the stock market will go this week. Our best sports experts cannot predict who will win the Super Bowl this year with any accuracy whatsoever. And here is Jesus making the greatest and hardest prediction of all time and then fulfilling it. Everyone on earth was surprised, except Jesus. He's different. And by the way, Jesus' resurrection wasn't just something he did for himself. He's willing to share it with others. Here's what he said in John 11, which was prior to him dying on the cross. In John 11, he says this to Martha, whose brother Lazarus had died, and, and Jesus is friends with them. And Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then the story continues in John 11, verse 38. Then Jesus, again, greatly disturbed, he comes to the tomb. So he's coming to Lazarus' tomb, his friend who's been dead for a while. He's been dead four days. And it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there's a stench because he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I've said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, he cried in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, and his hands and his feet were bound with strips of cloth, because that's part of the burial processes in the Jewish people in the, in the first century. And his face was wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. And many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, who was uh, Lazarus' other sister, who had come with Mary, and had seen what Jesus did, they believed in him. Yeah, I would think so. Like, you know, if, if he's like, hey, take the stone away, I'm the resurrection and the life. And it's like, well, you know, that's nice that you're saying that. But then he actually resurrects Lazarus. If you don't believe after that, then, you know, you'll probably never believe. But many of them did believe. What I want you to hear is the resurrection isn't just something Jesus did. It's who he is. He says, I am the resurrection and the life, and I'm willing to share with all who believe in me. The fifth evidence I'd point to is this, is that there's a wide type and number of eyewitness testimonies that are evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Eyewitness testimonies from credible individuals provide strong evidence for the resurrection. Jesus first appeared to women. Now, this is an interesting point, and, and culturally we wouldn't maybe understand this, so I'm going to have to give us some cultural understanding. 
so that you understand why this is important. In both Jewish and Greco-Roman society at the time, women of that day could not bear witness in a court of law. But God chose women to be the first witnesses to the resurrection of His Son. And this counts heavily against the idea that the story of the resurrection was just made up by the disciples to try to just gain some popularity. Because if you were making up a story that you wanted other people to believe was credible, you would not pick the first witnesses to be people who could not testify in court. You would pick other people who could testify in court. So the fact that women were the first eyewitnesses actually lends credibility to the claim that this is not a made-up story, it's a true story, because no one who would have concocted it that wanted someone to believe it would have picked a group of people that couldn't actually testify in court. And also the empty tomb obviously shows that it wasn't made up. Jesus appeared to other individuals, various groups, sometimes individuals, sometimes groups, including two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to the uh, 11 apostles that were left at that time after Judas had died. He appeared to them on more than one occasion and much more. Here's how Paul records all this in his letter to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1, he says this, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaimed to you, which you in turn received, and which you uh, also stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaimed to you, unless you've come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you, as of first importance, what in turn I had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Meaning, it was prophesied that this is how it was going to unfold. And he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Again, it was prophesied. Jesus said, hey, on the third day, I'm going to be raised again. And he appeared to Cephas, who, that's another name for Peter. He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive at the time of that, that Paul's writing this, though some have died. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So the fact that Jesus appeared to 500 people tells us that it couldn't have been an, a hallucination or a delusion because psychologists would tell you that delusions and hallucinations are singular events. You don't have shared hallucinations where you're seeing the exact same thing. You don't have shared delusions where all 500 people see the same thing. Like, even if you're dropping acid with your friends, you're not going to see the same thing as, as what everybody else is seeing. Like, it's, our psychology is individual, and so the fact that they saw, all 500 of them saw at the same time, shows that it wasn't a hallucination. And also, Jesus wasn't a disembodied spirit, or else the tomb wouldn't have been empty. Plus, to prove to his disciples that he wasn't a ghost or a disembodied spirit, he actually invited them and Thomas to, to touch him, and he also ate food in front of them. 
Like, they're all watching, like, what's going to happen to the fish he eats? Is it going to just, like, drop through him to the floor if he's a ghost? And it's like, he chews it up, and they're like, oh, we touched him. He ate food. He's bodily resurrected. Brings us to the sixth point, which is this, is that the transformed lives of the disciples are evidence for the resurrection. Prior to the resurrection, the disciples were discouraged. They were in hiding and they were full of doubt. However, after their encounters with the bodily resurrected Christ, the cowards became courageous, the doubters became believers, and the discouraged became resilient. This dramatic change can't be explained by mere wishful thinking or some type of ideation projection of what they were hap- uh, just hoping for. And you, you have to remember that none of the disciples... We're sitting at the tomb expecting the resurrection to happen. Jesus had told them it was going to happen, but they either forgot about it or they didn't believe him. So none of them are sitting there on Sunday morning going, shh, shh, everybody, I got my popcorn. Watch this. We're about to see the greatest event of all time. Three, two, one. No, they weren't there. They weren't there. They weren't expecting it to happen. In fact, the two Marys who had approached the tomb do so in grief and despondency, and they leave in amazement and joy, according to Matthew 28, verses 8 and 9. Running through the various resurrection accounts in the four Gospels is a sense of all of them basically saying, we can hardly believe it. But then you see this transformation where James and John who were once nicknamed the sons of thunder. If Jesus calls you the sons of thunder, that means you're probably creating problems. You, you might have anger issues. There's, there's some things going on. So the sons of thunders, they, they become known as the apostles of love. Their character changes. Simon Peter, who's once prideful and unstable and unpredictable, now becomes the rock. The eleven who are once fearful and confused, they now become an apostolic task force. They spent the rest of their lives proclaiming the message of the resurrection as cowards who had been transformed into becoming men of courage. They were willing to face arrest, imprisonment, beating, and horrible deaths, and not one of them ever denied the Lord or recanted their belief that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead after they had encountered the risen Lord. Brings me to the seventh point, which is this, is that the birth of the early church is evidence of the resurrection. The rapid spread of Christianity, despite the intense opposition, suggests that the early believers were convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus had risen. The proclamation of the resurrection was central to their message, and it attracted people from diverse backgrounds. We see this in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter speaking, he says this, You that are Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs. And remember, even the secular historians are like, yep, that's what he was known for. Deeds of powers, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know. This man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and you killed by the hands of those outside the law. Because the crucifixion was in a Jewish form of the death penalty. A Jewish form of death penalty would have been stoning to death. It was a Roman form. 
that actually had been prophesied in the Old Testament before it even came to existence. Verse 24, But God raised him up, having freedom from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. It is impossible for death to hold Jesus Christ in his power. Goes on and says in verse 32, This Jesus God raised up, and all of us are witnesses, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this that you both see and hear. Because this is happening on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was first given. Verse 37, it goes on. Now, when they heard this, the people who were listening, they were cut to the heart, which is a sign that the Holy Spirit's working in their life. Because now human words aren't just human words. Now the power of God is attending to them. And this might be happening for some of you right now, even as I speak, or some of you online or 1115 South. You're, you're like, hey, I, I know you're just a guy speaking, but there's a power that is coming to me that is attending to the words. And that's God at work. And he said, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him you might be like but tom you don't know i'm so far away from god yeah good thing he says it's for people who are far away well you don't know about my kids and what they're doing yeah and he says hey it's for your kids as well it is for you your children and for all who are far away everyone who the lord our god calls to him and he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them saying save yourself from this corrupt generation listen the one thing everybody on planet Earth agrees about is that we live in the midst of a fallen and corrupt world. We all have different ideas on how to improve it, but there's not many people walking around saying, yeah, everything's perfect on planet Earth today. Like, if, if they're thinking that, they aren't paying attention and reading the headlines, right? So it says, so those who welcomed this message, and I'm going to give you a chance. I, I know... We give this regularly, but I'm going to give you a chance again. Those who welcomed his message were baptized. And about that day, uh, that day, about 3,000 people were added to the, the church, to the community of disciples. Brings us to the eighth and final point, which is this, is that changed lives today from every tribe, tongue, and nation point to the continuing power of the resurrection of Christ. Countless people throughout history and in our own time, in our own life as well, have encountered the living Christ, and they've experienced His forgiveness and transformation and hope. In fact, this year, just here at Christian Assembly, this one little small church here in Eagle Rock, we've already had 372 people this year who said yes to Jesus and put their name on a card and gave it to us so we could follow up with them. I'm not talking about the person who prayed and slipped out the door. We never heard from them again. I'm talking about people who filled out a card and said, I want you to follow up for me. Daily, God is adding to our number those who are being saved. This is what God does. He doesn't just do it in Jerusalem in the first century. He does it in the 21st century in the city of angels as well. The Roman Empire is a relic. 
But the resurrection power of Jesus Christ is not a historic relic. It is a present reality. Matthew records that the risen Jesus said this in Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, that means students, of all nations. So people from every nation, baptizing them. We're having baptisms coming up in a little bit, in a couple weekends. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And remember, I'm always with you, even to the end of the age. Christianity is alone in the fact that its epicenter, as measured by the number of conversions, has moved around the globe historically. That is not true for any other worldview. Most Muslims are still in the Arabic part of the world. Most Hindus are still in India. But if you know history, then you know that the message of Jesus Christ is literally moving around the globe as measured by the number of people who are coming to Christ, and he's gathering people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. In 1900, Africa was 3% Christian. Today, it is 58% Christian. Let alone what God did in Korea, South Korea, what God's doing in China. There are more followers of Jesus Christ in China today than there are members of the Communist Party in China today. China is the next great Christian country. God is doing amazing things in the underground church in China. If you know your history, you know this is happening and nothing except the resurrection and its current power explains it. Once, there was a guy, and it's a true story, he, wanted to, he was the originator of a new religion. He wanted everybody to, to become part of his new religion. And he came to the great uh, French diplomat, a statesman named Charles uh, uh, Maurice Talleyrand, and he complained to him and said, I'm not having any luck starting my new world religion. I'm not getting many converts. And he said, what do you suggest that I do? And this is what Talleyrand said. I should recommend that you get yourself crucified and then die and then be sure to rise again on the third day. That's what he said. That was the recommendation. Christianity stands on the resurrection. We have the compelling evidence and strong reasons to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is rooted in history, it's grounded in Scripture, and it's confirmed by experience. The historical reliability of the Gospels, backed up by what non-Christian historians also say and align with, the empty tomb, the fact that Jesus predicted all of this in the empty tomb before it happened, the wide variety type and number of eyewitnesses, the transformed lives of the disciples, the birth of the early church, and the fact that even today lives are being changed of every tribe, tongue, and nation give us reasons to believe. But it's not just reasons to believe. It's reasons to hope and to have our hope set in Jesus Christ if we put our faith in Him. David Watson tells a story of when he was called into a a garden by his frightened daughter, and she was being chased by a bee. And he grabbed her and he wrapped her arms around her. And as he did that, she felt his body go tense. And then he said to her, no, no need to worry anymore, darling. The bee stung me. And bees can't sting twice. On the cross, 
Church, I want you to hear this on the cross. Jesus Christ is wrapping his arms around us. And his body tenses. And he takes the sting of death for us. We will still die if Jesus doesn't return first. But for everyone trusting in Jesus Christ, the sting of death has been removed by the cross and the resurrection. It assures us that in Christ, death is not the end, that sin is defeated, and that we have eternal life available to us in Jesus Christ. He's willing to share his resurrection. Let us embrace this truth with faith. Let us share it with the world, with every tribe, tongue, and nation. Let us live as resurrection people empowered by the same Holy Spirit that was poured out on the church in the early days in in Acts 2 in the day of Pentecost. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. May the resurrection of Jesus Christ be not only a belief, but may it be for you and for me, a living reality in our lives, transforming us and giving us hope in every circumstance. Why? Because as David Watson told his little daughter, bees don't sting twice. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray. So yeah, we can applaud God. So God, we applaud you. We applaud you, God. We thank you. We thank you for the resurrection. We say yes and amen to you. Listen, whether you're online, whether, whether you're Sunday morning on the south side of the street, whether you're here now, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, don't wait. This is your moment. You were created for a relationship with God. And yet sin in the world, we all freely have participated in it. And the wages of sin, according to the book of Romans, is death. Spiritual death, physical death, emotional death, mental death, relational death, being separated from God. And yet Romans goes on and says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Eternal life is available to you, both in quality as well as quantity. The life that you've always wanted and that you were created for is available to you in Jesus Christ. But you've got to say yes to him. Place your faith in him. Become one of his disciples. Learn how to trust him and follow him so that you can be renewed from the inside out. Ask him to give you his good Holy Spirit, and he will. Because of what he did on the cross, you can be forgiven of your sins, and you can be reconciled back to God. And once that happens, there's a renewing power in your life that begins to change you from the inside out by the power of his word, to change how you see the world and relate with everyone around you as well. If you're saying yes to God for the very first time, you can just say, God, I'm saying yes to you. I'm placing my faith in Jesus Christ. Forgive me of my sins. Save me. I believe. And I want to be one of your followers. And if you said yes to him, whether you're online, whether you're here now, your very next step is to be baptized. We encourage you to be baptized. We have baptisms coming up. Also want to encourage you to let me know and I'll get you a New Believer's New Testament so you can begin to read God's Word for yourself. Others of you, maybe you've given your life to Christ. And I simply want to invite you to renew the resurrection as the center point of your life. The hope in every circumstance that you have because Christ is risen. 
No matter what you're facing, Christ is risen. You don't need to wait to Easter to hear that Christ is risen. What do you have going on in your life that's a form of death to you? That you need to just say, God, I need your power. I need your presence. I need your comfort. Be the lifter of my head. Be the renewer of my soul. I wait on you for new strength. To do all that you want me to do. To be all that you want me to be. Because of your grace. And lastly, who do you need to pray for and share the good news of Jesus Christ with this week? God, I pray that you would bring to mind right now people for each one of us, if we're believers, that don't know you, that we would make an intentional, prayerful effort to have a spiritual conversation this week to share the good news of Jesus Christ to them. Church, next week we're going to end this series by answering the question, how now do we live as resurrection people? God, I pray this week that the power of your resurrection would be both intellectually true, but also it would be a hope and an anchor for our souls. Not only intellectually true, but one that we experience in our everyday reality because it's intellectually true. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.